Well, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we are in Matthew chapter 5, and beginning in verse 38, as we continue our study, hear now the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Now what the Lord is doing here in this Sermon on the Mount in this portion is He's showing them that in order for them to inherit the kingdom of God and to come into the kingdom of God, they must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So what he's been doing now for several passages here in chapter 5 is he's been pointing to certain examples of Old Testament law and comparing what the elders, or that is the scribes and the Pharisees and their predecessors, had taught the people was the meaning of the law. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, and then he gives a much richer, fuller, deeper, much more profoundly spiritual interpretation of the law as to the law's original intent. So he's gone through the, the law, thou shalt not uh, murder, and he talked about anger. We've gone through the passage that the law that says thou shalt not commit adultery, and he's talked about lust. And now we finally come to this passage here where it's talking about the, the law in the Old Testament, this an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, in order to really understand what that means, we probably ought to go back and take a look at two or three of the passages where that, particularly, uh, that particular phrase occurs. Now, what's the Lord driving at? Let's just go ahead and talk about the, the practical application of this from the very beginning. What the Lord is trying to do is to get them to move away from a spirit of retaliation and a spirit of revenge. And what the law basically says is, when a harm is done, then there can be no more exaction or penalty or retribution than the extent of the harm. In other words, if someone knocks out an eye, then all you can do is take an eye or its equivalent in, uh, in restitution, monetary damages or whatever. And, and if someone takes out a tooth, only a tooth. You can't take a life for an eye or a life for a tooth. You can only take that which is a fair recompense. And basically, the, some of this material here, the Lord used it for those people to get a real fine sense of justice so they could establish what was basically the moral law in the land. And so the Lord is trying to get them to see that there's more to this than just the simple letter of the law spelling these things out in a wooden and concrete way for their interpretation. He's working to the heart. He's trying to show them that they need a spirit of reconciliation, that they need a spirit of peace and toleration, a, a, an attitude and a, and a practice of patience, endurance, long-suffering, forbearance, uh, something that would defuse the situation, that would bring peace. And in order to do that, it required an unusual humility and 
And also, at the very end of the text, he wants people to have an openness of heart, a generosity of heart, to have a loose hold on possessions. Because actually where the Lord is taking us, and in the very next passage, uh, next week, we'll see that he's taken into this, us to this notion of we must love our enemies. Now, that's just a difficult thing to do and almost impossible to imagine such a thing. But if we've reached the point where we are able to understand the law and we're able to understand with it a certain amount of tolerance and forbearance and a, and a certain amount of reconciliation and peace, then it's not very far for us to move more toward an attitude toward our enemies of love. And so this whole passage here is a preamble to the notion of loving our enemies and forgiving those who mistreat us. So let's go back and look at this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth principle for just a moment. And you'll find it two or three places places in the uh, Old Testament. We have the book of Moses, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And you'll remember that it is especially Exodus where the law is given at Mount Sinai. We have it recorded. And in that particular passage in chapter 21, uh, you have the law uh, given from Mount Sinai, but then when you get to chapter 21, the next chapter, you have a case law. That, that is specific applications of that commandment to particular cases in, in law and in society. And what's being done is the Lord is giving them a notion of crime and punishment, a real feel for the crime matching I mean, the punishment matching the crime. It's a limitation of justice. It's an implementation of equity and equal relations. The, the uh, point here is to establish a civil order, a code of law. But in order to do that, you've got to go beyond the letter of the law and really understand the purpose and the intent and the spirit of the law. So the Lord uses this phrase several times in his revelation to them. And let's uh, look at the one there in Exodus uh, chapter 21. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And you can see what is being dealt with here, obviously, is the matter of personal injury. When someone has encountered a harm and they've incurred harm, then there is the proper and the right way to rectify, to recompense, and to set at right and make whole the person. Um, Another place the law is spelled out in quite a bit of, of uh, precision and uh, extensiveness is in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is written to the Levites, that is the priest. The tribe of Levi were the priest in Israel. And it was their job to not only teach the law, but also to function as the, the uh, legal system and the lawyers and the defenders and the prosecutors and the, uh, uh, the judges even in, in this matter. And so in Leviticus, we have this, this passage concerning and mentioning the eye for the eye and the tooth for a tooth. This is Exodus, I'm sorry, Leviticus 24. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good for his life. 
If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. What's being taught here, in addition to what we've seen earlier, is this principle of making everything equal. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. This is equity and retribution being able to to set things as they should be. So there's a repeat of that notion of spelled out eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury has been given, that should be given to him. Now this is the, the legal and the just system. But notice he has several other preliminary things to say. Whoever uh, um, says you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native. In other words, there's equal justice under the law. He says, for I am the Lord your God. That's interesting. That phrase appears quite a few times in the law, and it is given as a reminder, and the Lord wants him to know that the justice system that he is giving them, the moral code, the law, the commandments, the case law, arises out of the Lord himself. The great I am. I am the Lord your God. And so the notion of justice comes from the character of a righteous God. Our God is a righteous God. He is right in all of his ways. He does nothing but justice. He establishes justice. And that's what's being done here in the earliest years of the uh, theocracy there in uh, Israel. God is giving these principles. And they are not only to apply to Israel's government, but they're to apply generally to mankind. All of human government should be based upon the revelation of the character of God as given in his commandments. And that's true. Uh, We have no English, no law in our American uh, country except that which is derived from the English common law, which was derived from the biblical case law. And that's why we say that that our jurisprudence system is a Judeo-Christian jurisprudence system. And when you move away from that, when you start taking God's commandments and disregarding them, and I'm not talking about simply taking them off the, the wall of the courthouse or off out of the courtroom. That's a, a, a symbol that you have less regard of no regard at all for the law. But I'm talking about actually taking the law of God and setting aside. You begin to break down moral order. Because all the laws of God are set forth to protect something. The law thou shalt not um, murder is, is meant to protect life. Thou shalt not commit adultery protects marriage. Thou shalt not bear false witness protects truth, which of course is the establishment of justice as well. Um, thou shalt not steal establishes the right, the property rights of personal property. And, and on down the list you go, the, the laws of God establish the justice system for the land. And um, it's based upon God's own character. Now, one other place, move to the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, the word deutero means second, and nomos, law. So the second giving of the law, which, by the way, God gave the law to Moses when they first came out of Egypt. They hadn't been out very long, and they were in the wilderness of Sinai. 
for about 38 years or so, for a total of 40 years, they just wandered in the wilderness, went in big circles and wandered around and never did enter into the promised land. But when they came time for them to enter into the promised land, Moses gathered all the people together there on the plains of Moab, which was southeast of of the, of the promised land and began to give them the law again to remind them of what they were to do once they entered into the land. So many of the laws had to do with living in the land with respect to agricultural land in, in cities and cities of refuge and all sorts of things that had to do with living in the land as the occupiers of the land of Canaan. Well, they didn't occupy the land of Canaan just yet, but they were going to quite soon. And so God had a covenant renewal with his people on the plains of Moab, and he gave them uh, this, uh, this covenant, this word. Um, but let's listen to this particular passage here. Here's one out of Deuteronomy chapter 19. You shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear in fear, and shall never again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. There's a whole lot in this passage. You just don't have any idea what we're looking at when we look at something like this. For example, that very first statement coming out of verse 19, 1919, Deuteronomy. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. It's actually the evil one or the evil ones, those that do evil. And, and the law was given and quite a few things that are surrounding it in other, in other passages was given in order that they might purge the land of its criminality. The way to keep the evil and the scourge of the uh, of violence out of the land is to, is to have these laws in order that, and the rest shall hear in fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. They were set up as a deterrent. It's not enough to punish crime, but also in the punishment of crime, there needs to be a significant negative consequences that the people realize that they do not want to violate these laws. And uh, one of the premier ones was the law concerning the incorrigible son. There was a law that said if your son was incorrigible, that a father was to turn him over to the elders or the judges, those men who, who, who handled the justice system, and they would have a hearing and receive witnesses and, and try a case against the son. And if the son was found guilty, he was to be stoned to death. And people hear that and they think, oh my goodness, some poor little eight-year-old boy, he disobeyed his dad, he, he did something he wasn't supposed to do, and his dad turns him over to the elders and they stone him. No, 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 that's not what this is talking about. The incorrigible son was the son who had proven himself to be absolutely incorrigible. He was absolutely without correction. He would not obey the voice of his father. This is the boy that insisted upon wanton living. This is the boy that insisted upon drinking and to drunkenness. He insisted upon violence. He would, he would rape. He would rob. He would steal. He would even murder. There's a lot of passages in the Old Testament that talks about the violent person. That's who this is. This incorrigible son will heed no voice. He will hear no instruction. He will take no correction. His father pleads with him to behave himself. He tries to get the son to act right. And the son is basically not only a personal uh, evildoer, but he is a criminal. And this was God's way of 
purging the criminal class out of society in order that the rest, the vast majority, the 99.99% of the people could have a certain amount of peace and rest in their land. So these incorrigible sons were once their father had given up on them, he would turn them over to the magistrates and the magistrates then would determine. Now, if, if the father had made a mistake and this boy was not incorrigible, besides just being turned over, the magistrates brought him to his senses and he straightened up and they judged that he was not incorrigible any longer. He was free to live and he'd make a fine young man, grew up to be a fine young man. But if he was going to insist in this and he had committed such egregious and violent acts so far and he was judged to be guilty, he'd be stoned. And stoning kept the criminal class out of ancient Israel. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of sociological studies to tell us that most violent crimes in a society, that is raping, robbing, uh, mugging, uh, gang-type activities, uh, torture, uh, murder, uh, insurrection, overthrowing, and, and going against law enforcement, and all that stuff that is, that is part of the criminal acts are done by men between the ages of about 16, 15, 16, and 24, 25, right in there, that 10-year period. That's the incorrigible son. That is the, the hardcore teenage delinquent. Look how many of these guys become school shooters. And then the young men that are, that are uh, never really brought to any kind of peaceful living because by the time a young man in Israel was in his 20s, early 20s, he should be married, starting a family, and being a productive member of society. If he's 24, 25 years old and still uh, committing these violent acts, he was to be eliminated. And I know we've got a different nuanced way of thinking in our modern world, and, uh, but I'm not sure it's a better way to keep our, our people safe. We tolerate. That's exactly what the very next part of the verse says. Um, those you shall purge the evil from your midst. That's how you purge the evil. Verse 21, your eye shall not pity. There's another principle right there that's pretty important. And that is that emotion, pity, is to be kept out of the legal system. I don't know how many guys that have done awful deeds, they end up in court and the justice system and their parents and, and different people, oh, they feel so sorry for these boys. They need more help. They need, you know, and they, they, they will not bring the hand of justice down upon these young men. They, they excuse them. They expunge their records. They do away with what is really first-class felonies committed by teenagers. You can't try them as adults. You can't deal with them. And then they become a real, real problem down the road. And the Lord anticipates that that's the way we would feel. It's a natural thing to feel sorry for someone when they're in some kind of trouble and to pity them and to, and to want to go easy on them and give them second chances and so on. That's what the Lord is cautioning about here. Thine eye shall not pity him. And then finally, it says, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, in the moment we have left, let's look at these cases that are brought here. There are four of them. And the first one has to do with turning the other cheek. This is, this is more insult than it is injury. It says, when someone slapped you on the cheek, instead of slapping them back and escalating the violence... It is a, a admonition of the Lord that you just suffer that. You suffer the insult. You suffer the minor injury. You, 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 you forgive and let it go. Because otherwise, in, uh, in, in retaliation and in vengefulness, 
one act gets worse than the other. You have like family feuds in the old days when someone would do something to a family and say rob or hurt someone, then they would the other family would escalate and do something a little more harmful to the other one. Then they would retaliate and back and forth. And you have this escalation of violence in this, and that's what the that's what the Lord is trying to get them to move away from, is that kind of feeling in society. And so you just suffer the insult. Now this happened to Jesus. Christ was struck, slapped, and the Bible says that he didn't retaliate. Uh, the other one here, the next one in verse 40, talks about being sued. This is uh, vexatious litigation. With all the laws in ancient Israel, it was, it was possible to be in court all your life. There were all kinds of things that you could be sued in court, and there was a, a, a good legal system to hear it out. But this says if, you're, if your cloak has been taken away from you, then you just give up your tunic. In other words, you just let that property go. You give it up. You yield. You forfeit. You forbear. And, uh, and the scripture says in Romans that we are to, over, to overcome evil with good. And this too happened to Christ. Now, Christ lost his garment at his crucifixion. They didn't preserve his property for him. They didn't give it to the next of kin. They didn't do anything. They simply stole his seamless garment. And it let, had to be let go. In 41, verse 41, it talks about going for another mile. Now this is impressment. Uh, the Persians did this in fine order. The Persians used to force people, citizens and regular people, to do things for them. You can read about it in Esther chapter 8 where the king forces men to become couriers. That is to carry messages and burdens and packages over long distances when they're traveling. And the, the uh, uh, Greeks and the Syrians picked this practice up and the Romans took it to an art form. They would have their soldiers to have these heavy packs that are called uh, impedimenta. That is, they had all kinds of material, maybe weighing 75, 80 pounds. And they would put that off on a, a, a captured people, and they would force them to, to take it one mile, to carry that heavy pack one mile. And it was, it was not only a burden, but it was an insult. And, it, and it, 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 it reminded a subjugated people that they were slaves and they were subjugated. And this happened in Jesus' day. Jesus was forced to carry his own cross by the Romans. And what was even worse is when he, he, when he was not able to, they assigned it to another man who had nothing to do with anything. But they forced Simon the Cyrene to carry the cross of Jesus. Now, the last one given there is about... Uh, generosity. We've got personal violence, how to deal with personal uh, insulting violence, um, minor injury, uh, vexatious litigation, and also impressment, being forced to go a mile and carrying a pack. Be willing to just subdue your own hostility and take it another mile. And finally, there's this notion of giving uh, and the land, it has to do with, with uh, uh, the way they would set up the commerce. It had to do with the gifts. It also had to do with lending money. This was the principle of generosity. And we see this here that it was, of course, we know that it was illegal, according to biblical law, to charge interest. You read that in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy passages. So the people would not charge interest for a loan, but people would borrow money and then not pay. And that was a form of stealing. 
And this was something that was forbidden. And the Lord said, if you loan somebody some money, be willing to grant it as a gift. If you loan someone $100 and they're not able to pay or they can't pay or they won't pay or they don't pay, then you regard that as a gift instead of uh, exacting your, your uh, revenge upon them and your retribution you be willing to regard it as a gift, which means that you're more cautious with your generosity. When you loan somebody some money you may, or some property, you may realize that we need to recognize that we may not get it back. And so it, it becomes a gift from the, very, from the very start. And this happened to Jesus. Jesus gave his own life. He yielded up his own life for us and for our sins. He did not clutch and cling to his own life but he yielded himself up as a sacrifice for our sins so we see every principle here the lord talks about and is trying to get us to so we can get to that part to where we have the peace the toleration the patience the endurance the long suffering the forbearance the the humility and all that we need in our life we get to the point where we can love our enemies we've got to work on these particular uh, um, principles of uh, of um of living that are outlined in this case law in the Old Testament. Well, I've just run out of time again, and uh, it's time for our communion.